Hello, civic-minded, responsible, thrill-seeking females, and welcome to Feminism Out Loud, the podcast where Australian women discuss I feminist topics. Be a woman and happy to share the with my sisters and my friends who struggle down this road. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that we're recording today on the land of the Wajuk Noongar and the Moanina peoples. This land was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today we're going to be talking about sex positivity, so we'll start off with a bit of a definition of what that is. We'll go through some of the history of sex positivity and how we got to where we are today. Then we'll have a bit of a discussion about some of the ideas around this, um, and then we'll sum up with some um, alternative feminist ideas. Okay, so defining sex positivity, it's quite a big task. Yeah, I think that when we're talking about sex positivity, it's important to remember that there are probably a lot of different strands within the ideology that we would call sex positive feminist feminism um some of which like some of which are probably closer to like the definitions that would be used in the academia some of the more colloquial definitions so um probably like two of the big major strands of thought that I've seen would be firstly the kind of what was generally called sex positive feminism traditionally and in the like early third wave and things like that which is basically an idea of like that it's a feminism that has an analysis about sex and that that analysis is that through women's desires and sexual activity and such we can use those for liberation and for empowerment and for things like that so basically this is the sort of kind of feminist porn idea right that like if we create stuff centered around women's sexuality that is liberating right um and this idea of like women's sexuality is yeah, um, sort of privileged and analysed. And then secondly, mm-hmm. there's the sort of sex positivity that is often kind of like thrown around as kind of almost a thought terminating cliche, right, um, in the modern day, which is the idea that like sex positivity literally just means that anything between consenting adults is always fine. And so therefore they can have no analysis about sex. So this is often just basically like liberalism, except maybe they push the borders of the private sphere a bit further back to only include sex, for instance. Yeah, so there's sex-positive feminism that talks about sex in a positive way, and then there's sex-positive feminism that just refuses to talk about sex, basically. Yeah, it sounds like the major division there is kind of between the political and an apolitical view of sex, and that's actually an interesting uh, division between radical feminism and sex-positive feminism, is that radical feminism sees sex is being very political and applies a lot of analysis to it. The first form of uh, sex-positive feminism that you describe um, sees it as political, applies analysis and comes to a different conclusion to that of radical feminism. And the second type of sex-positive feminism sees sex as being basically apolitical and, yeah, it's that very liberal idea of people's behaviours and choices existing in a vacuum and not sort of having a cultural input and a, and a political significance. Mm, mm. I'd say that both are quite prominent in feminism today because, like, pe- people who consider themselves sex positive feminists, like, I think you're very right, absolutely have a political conception of sex and what that means and do understand things that they support or advocate for as being part of a means of dismantling patriarchy and working for women's liberation. And I would honestly, I think that that would be hopefully what we're talking about today because it's honestly a lot more interesting and I think also I guess is where some more of these really important divisions about actually like very core 
very core ideas about how feminists feel about sex and how that plays out in politics. And then the second group, I think you're right, is more closely aligned to liberalism and are just kind of frustrating to deal with because they've already kind of missed out on an important port of feminism being the the politicization of the personal sphere and that realm for women. And um, in politics, I think it can often be tempting to, you know, go for the low-hanging fruit, which is basically, well, you say we can't have politics about sex, why not? And because nobody can give a satisfactory answer to that, because of course you can have politics about sex because mm. politics comes into every part of our lives. The conversation's basically over at that point. Um, so I think it's a lot more interesting to talk about these ideas that often still, I think, obviously are influenced by liberalism. I think that these ideas generally are, um, while they're couched in a lot of radical language, often still are heavily influenced by liberalism. And um, mm. I, I sort of, I agree with a lot of what Sheila Jeffries says about this basically being like sex, sexual libertarianism. Um but I think, yeah, the idea that like go like looking at these ideas like as political ideas, taking them on their like best, basically on sex positivity's best day, sex positivity is still wrong, right? Like the ideology yeah. of sex positivity is still bad, even when presented in the absolute but optimal way. Yeah, yeah. That like that that all being said and taken into account, with I think that part of the reason that we would also look to that we'd look to sex positivity being a set of political ideas and values about sex is that realistically if we do want to see feminist change is that that's going to be the arena that we want to see it happen because these are women who are agitating for feminist change and are putting ideas out into the world and you know trying to win hearts and minds and change our society and they're the ones who are going to have a lot more success at it than just being like no sex we don't need to worry about that or think about it whatever you want it's fine so I think that definitely those ideas are the ones that are important to engage with and critique and also support the good pieces because that's where we are most likely to see feminist change and actually make some wins for women. Yeah, it's interesting that this has become uh, such a staple part of feminist discourse because from my understanding, a lot of the, the roots, the sort of historical roots of these ideas are actually, interestingly enough, quite patriarchal. So they have they have roots in um, people like the, the sexologists who were kind of yeah had, had very specific ideas about what was healthy and normal behaviour and how women should behave and what they should desire. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you read Sheila Jeffries, which is honestly the source of most of my uh, historical take on sex positivity, which you know clearly need a bit of a need to diversity and branch out, but I think that she does give a really good kind of overview in a lot of her writings about. Um, that role of sexologists and how we start to see this cultural change in the 50s because I feel like a lot of feminist discourse does tend to present older ideas about sex being very Victorian, like the idea that women don't have any sexuality. Oh, well, I know we also get to the idea, which I think overlaps with Victorian, of women actually being very sexually, almost well, manipulative in a way. And But anyway, we're, we're, we're backtracking to the point where, you know, women are seen as quite sexless beings. But then when you do arrive in the 50s and you see the advent of sexology and sex therapy and a lot of these sorts of institutions, you definitely see a significantly growing idea that no women do have a sexuality, but that should be in service to their husbands. And I mean, like um, that was the time of Freud when you're seeing a lot of writing about women's sexuality, particularly about um, types of stimulation and clitoral orgasms versus women's desire to be penetrated and all these sorts of ideas about women and sex, which 
yeah, during the 50s was very much about women should be enjoying sex and actively wanting to have sex, but in a very particular way, namely with their husband under like society's prescribed set of ideals for that time. Yeah, and it's sort of this this interesting transition from sort of the women's sexuality existing for other people, but for one specific other person, namely her husband, mm. then the transition through the 60s and 70s through the sort of sexual revolution and the free love movement with the advent of birth control when women's sexuality was ostensibly freed, but I think sort of just passed over to other people and women were expected to be sexually available and sexually enthusiastic with lots and lots of men. Mm, mm. Yeah, like I unfortunately have no idea who to attribute this to, but you do see it going around quite a bit that conservative men want women to be private property and progressive men want women to be public property, which it's quite a succinct summary of kind of that cultural shift that did happen with the sexual revolution that women were Mm. now expected to be sexually open and again it's still wanting to have sex with men and in the ways that men want but men just shifted the goalposts and changed what the rules were and what the expectations were women were still expected to conform to those expectations yeah yeah absolutely and i i think about that quote a fair bit because i think in some ways it is a bit um a bit reductive because Mm. I still think that, you know, in modern society, for instance, we still do have a very strong idea of like the idea of like basically women belonging to an individual man. I mean, I certainly think that you're right that that statement is a bit reductive and um, can be a little like, you know, it's designed to be simplistic. It's meant to be a really, really brief summary to just capture one part of the picture. I think that another way, I guess, of conceptualizing that shift is that, sexuality was also taken from that private sphere into the public sphere and that if men weren't like aren't expecting women to be public property as such they absolutely do expect the public sphere to cater to men's sexual desires and male sexual culture and wanting that to be something that they don't need to keep hidden from public life so that's where you see that proliferation of sexualized imagery in public spaces and in media and in just that I don't know if you'd call it a slow creep or an explosion actually because it seems like both at the same time but you know that where we've arrived at now where you do have a culture that publicly caters to male sexuality and that was another cultural shift there and of course that shift like didn't happen without opposition because there was obviously second wave feminism and opposition to these sorts of ideas, which brings us wonderfully to the feminist sex wars, which we lost regrettably. Um, It's interesting because in my wonderful foray into gender studies that I like to do occasionally, um, generally there seems to be like a disc- the idea that like the sex wars is ongoing and i think we can sort of see that right like we still occasionally mm. get melinda tankard riced on tv or something mm. i think that we like it to the extent to which anti like like non sex positive feminists lost the sex wars i think that was on some level of relatively probably inevitable loss we were never we were never going to win over dominant society as long as dominant society continues to be patriarchal right Mm, mm. um but i think i I wouldn't say we lost we may have lost some battles but i think (laughs) overall one day we'll win the feminist sex wars 
the good fight continues. Yeah. I don't think the feminist sex wars will be... Well, I think the feminist sex wars, like, you can conceive of them either as, like, something that happens publicly in the public perception of feminism or something that happens within the discourses of feminism. So, yeah. And I think the internal one is obviously one that can be shifted back and forth a lot more, like the internal feminism one, whether sex positivity or not is, like, a more dominant stream of thought in, like, the modern feminist movement. Um, But I think the overall, like, public perception one, right, we were never going to probably get rid of um, a lot of things that... Uh, we were never going to get rid of pornography, for instance, until mm. um, we get rid of patriarchy, really. So, yeah. Just for those readers, uh, those, oops, <laughs> just for those listeners readers. who might not be, <laughs> um, who might not be sort of fully caught up on what we're talking about here, the sex wars uh, took place in, I guess, the 1980s. And there was sort of between two, the, I mean, the, the second wave was traditionally uh, not sex positive and, you know, analysis of sex and its place in society grew up during the sexual revolution and in opposition to the um, you know, expectation of women being sexually available and uh, all of this kind of thing. Um, and so this, the second wave position was traditionally sort of opposed to this. And then during the 80s, there was a growth of pro-porn and pro-prostitution and pro-BDSM uh, feminism or ideas that grew up out of this and in opposition to it. And the, the sex wars were sort of between those two kind of opposing feminist factions about how we place these things in our analysis, how we view them, and what we sort of our approach is to things that happen in private. Because there is, as Fraser mentioned earlier on in the show, there is that sort of pervasive idea that, well, if it happens in the bedroom, it's private, and anything going on between two consenting adults is fine, and we're not, nobody's allowed to analyze that or ask questions about what's going on. Whereas the radical feminist perspective would have a much more political view of that and suggest that we don't make our choices in a vacuum, but we're strongly influenced by culture and the pervading politics around sexual practice. And so that influences how people treat each other in their interpersonal relations. Uh, I think sex positivity also had not only a discussion of um, choices and not analysing women's choices. I think it was in a way almost a lot of currents were centred on women's desires. So something that's relatively big in radical feminism, particularly radical lesbian feminism, is an analysis of the way that um, living under patriarchy constructs and creates our desires. So while sex positive feminism would probably, like a lot of currents within it would say that basically um, women's desires are good. They are like a good um, expression of female sexuality in like, the, you know, they're, 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 they represent the idea of female sexuality and that is inherently good because female sexuality has been um, historically repressed and hidden and so bringing that to light is good and so therefore that sexuality and those desires are good. Whereas, you know, radical feminism would be like, well, actually, was that really what happened? Was it in the sense of uh. like um, – or like was it in the sense of like, oh, women suddenly – um, develop like were suddenly sexology came along and allowed women to show their desires or was it that sexology came along and patriarchy did patriarchy's thing and used and basically created sexology which shifted the discourse in such a way to allow a different form of the exploitation of women right and that women's desires and women's sexuality has to be can't just be taken at face value and has to be heavily analyzed because our desires are created socially and yeah, patriarchy um, constructs what 
we conceive of as sexuality and it constructs like normative female sexuality just as much as it constructs normative male sexuality. And a great example of that, I think, is um, BDSM, which is sort of one of those hot-button issues at that time, and it concerns the, sort of the eroticisation of violence and whether or not, you know, pe- people who are arguing for this would argue that generally women are naturally submissive, that's ingrained and innate, um, and so that's fine for, you know, uh, people to get off on causing each other pain or being, or somebody causing them pain, whereas a more radical analysis would say, well, you know, women are brought up to fulfil the function of a subordinate class within a patriarchal system. And so it sort of makes sense that their sexual desires are influenced and informed and shaped by that. And one of the outcomes of that can be an eroticisation of, of sexual violence and submission and domination. Hmm. I wouldn't say that sex positivity even explicitly considers that women are naturally sexually submissive because I do think that a lot of um, their like sex positive writing and stuff does actually go against that as much of it is kind of an undercurrent in other parts of it. I think that it's more of what Fraser was getting at where kind of any desire by women is seen as good and that because BDSM Mm. can be a tool for women experiencing desire that they might otherwise not because that is an account that you see. Um, like particularly online, but just like around generally, that this is a way for women to experience desire when they would otherwise not get to experience this positive feeling. And so that that inherently is a good. It's a good in the world. It's a good for women because it's an enjoyable feeling that women are not otherwise getting to feel. And so because this construction of sexual feelings and female desire being both a result of but also necessary to achieve female liberation generally that that then positions BDSM as good because that's how these women are getting these feelings. I think one of the fundamental clashes here between sex positive feminism and anti-sex feminism as it's generally called by detractors um, is this idea of like is the female sexuality that we see today, something that is actively suppressed by patriarchy and that patriarchy wants to get rid of, or is the sexuality that we see today something that is created by patriarchy and that patriarchy wants to exist, right? Mm. I think that's honestly mm. probably one of the big major clashes, right? Which I find like it helps when having this discussion to like state that um, blatantly because it really get like allows us to get down into like what is the theoretical underpinning of these um discussions Mm-mm. no i think you're yeah like pr- pretty much completely on the money there that that is the main ideological divide is is the sexuality that we see today one of authenticity or construction and yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. i think it's also the idea that yeah um i think there is also like other ideas within sex positivity around the idea that like as a feminist movement, is it correct to say that there is um, that there is a correct way to be sexual, right? Because, like, as radical feminists, while we we we, we obviously do think that people should have um, people should have a sexuality that does not involve violence, that does not involve hierarchy or power or harm to anybody, and pe- sex positive um, and sex positive ideology often does 
correctly point out that that does involve us saying that there are wrong, that there are bad ways to be sexual, right? That mm. therefore sexuality and desire involving involving hierarchy and stuff is something that we don't want to see something that would not exist in our perfect society, right? I think that we're often quite squeamish, right, about being like, no, this is bad and we don't like it. But I think it helps, you know, if we just own up to the fact that it's like, no, we we don't want there to – we don't think that sex and violence should be entangled, that sex and power and hierarchy mm. should be entangled. We think that in the ideal world, sexuality and desire would exist apart from – like it would not be a hierarchical thing. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I think that people very often get caught up in thinking that that sort of position that there is um, things that we say are bad or that can be bad in sexuality is all about moralizing and trying to prescribe people's behavior when it's none of our business, ignoring the fact that when the women under patriarchy, sexuality is such a central point of oppression for women that if we want to see the liberation of women we need to see an overhaul of sexuality and that that is going to see change in individuals behavior like it's not about policing individuals it is about achieving real political change so i just i just add to that that i think there's often yeah there's these accusations of moralizing but people also get caught up in this idea of shaming um and it's sort of this suggestion that radical feminists are attacking individual women's choices and shaming them and trying to make them feel bad, whereas I don't see it that way at all. It's, it's about asking questions about where these things come from and are they good for us as women as individuals? Are they good for us as women as a class? How do we sort of position them within our own personal histories and with a broader political history of women? Uh, but it's not about, you know, women with hairy legs and overalls storming into your bedroom to take your latex away. It's a much more sort of, um, <laughs> much more political and broader discussion than that. <laughs> Can we just like draw that and make that the new banner for the podcast? <laughs> yeah. It'll be great. It'll be beautiful. I can already en- envision it. <laughs> yeah. I think it's also important to be like the reason that Radfems bang on so much about this um, is because fundamentally Radfems often do, particularly. Um, lesbian feminists do tend to see sex and sexuality as a very important theater in which patriarchy plays out. Right. Mm. So it's not that we just happen to be particularly obsessed with sex while we do want to spend a lot of time talking about it, not only because there, this is such a conflict point in feminism, but also because um, we think that these issues are incredibly important because we think that sex is a very important like theater where men oppress women, right? So mm. we think that these often ideas are very core to patriarchy, right? Like a lot of radical feminist analysis, even about like um, PIV, penis and vagina sex, right, is something that we is something that radical feminism often considers to be a quite core product of and precipitant of patriarchy. So. Yeah, it's not that we just want to bang on about this because we're a bit obsessed. It's because it's something that radical feminism ideologically places as central to um, the oppression of women. Mm. I think that would be like my primary criticism of sex positivity, very much related to what you're saying, is that it in many ways either 
incidentally removes the ability to talk about women's oppression in the realm of sexuality and sex, or it just outright denies that there is a relationship or that this takes place. Like a lot of the phrases that I think about a lot that tends to come out of an area related to sex positivity is the idea that rape is not about sex, it's about power. And like, don't get me wrong, that phrase comes from an incredibly good place and I think that it does have some value um, and that it has been part of a wider movement that has been very good for survivors' rights and recognition and all of these, like and under this sort of banner. But I think that it does show that there seems that there is generally an idea that sex and power can be divorced when it comes to the oppression of women and men when that isn't the case because sexuality is one of the places that women's oppression plays out whether you're looking at women's oppression through um like the exploitation of our reproductive labor is obviously explicitly tied to sex or just the dehumanization of women the turning us into objects to be consumed is almost always through sex and these two related ideas about reproduction and objectification and that removal of personhood can always be tied back to the sex act piv i think an interesting kind of demonstration of this culture as a whole just kind of starting from the outset is the fact that there is such a concentrated male effort to get women to sleep with them. Like, that sounds kind of obvious and maybe a bit self-explanatory, but, like, like we can all acknowledge that this culture is outright predatory when it comes to women and sexuality and the fact that men have the need to manipulate or outright force women to have sex with them. Like, from the outset, that should probably make people a little bit suspicious that perhaps this culture isn't actually functioning for women when we have this whole act set up that when you look at it, women aren't actually that excited about given the level of coercion that apparently needs to take place. Or even when you just listen to women's numerous complaints about sex with men and the fact that it's not fulfilling, it's not pleasurable, they don't necessarily get what they want out of it. And obviously that's not true for every single individual woman who has ever had sex with a man, certainly not. There are some very vocal supporters um, like of individual encounters even within this culture that we're talking about. But when you look at men's side, there's no real, there's no mirror to what women have where we have this mix of people saying, no, sex under this culture is great for women, or no, sex under this culture is fundamentally alienating at best and traumatic at worst. There's no collection of men saying this. Like our predominant cultural message about sex from men is that it's great and something that they succinctly seek out even if you sometimes hear about ones who just want to settle down. There's absolutely no, I guess, yeah, mirrored portion of men who are so unfulfilled and unsatisfied both from our culture and the, pro the typical heterosexual acts which are generally, compared to men, less pleasurable for women and significantly more risky for women.
Yeah. The response to this is a great showcase for the sort of contrasting um, perspectives, I think, as well, because on the one hand, you've sort of got the the Nicki Minaj school of feminism that sort of goes, great, well, we've got this problem and the solution is orgasm equality and make sure X, Y, Z happens and then that's fine and that's the problem solved. And then you have a more critical uh, sort of more radical analysis that goes, well, why are we doing this in the first place? What What is the function of this? And if it's, if women are not happy and it's, you know, has the potential to cause other harms uh, on top of that, what's what's the function of this and why why does it happen and why are we still doing it and why, yeah, well, what's, what's the actual solution to this? Yeah, I suppose it comes down to an idea of whether, because quite often everyone will look at modern um, sexual culture, modern hookup culture, look at it and be like, okay, there's 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 some problems here. Like everyone can agree that there's some sort of problems here, like most people that align themselves vaguely with feminism. Um, and there's, I suppose, the answer that is, so the correct response is to reform that via orgasm equality and cosmopolitan articles. And then there is the, um, and then there is the side that is the, has the more radical response, which is like, okay, why does the system exist? What is the purpose of this? Why are things the way that they are? And from that, how can we eliminate the system because it is doing harm to women and because of its purpose, which is the, which is as a man, as an active manifestation of patriarchy and something that perpetuates patriarchy. Um, it, there's, there's no way to reform it in a way that will actually result in no harm being done to women. So mm. yeah. A really interesting. Time to start stealing people's latex. <laughs> A really interesting, <laughs> a really interesting site, I think, for this sort of conflict or differences in approach to sexuality is probably things like the pill and contraceptives generally, because there are mm. like quite a lot of writings around that considered the pill to be a liberating force for women and contraception generally to be a liberating force for women, and obviously a lot of the times it is because women are not we don't have the power often to make decisions about whether we have sex or who we have sex with and those sorts of tools can actually like can absolutely be a protective factor under those sorts of circumstances and I think from that perspective have done an absolute world of good for women and protected a lot of women so we've kind of got this big so we've kind of got this idea that there is a realm of use of the pill where it's much more of a survival tactic and then we've got this idea that there is also use of the pill which is largely liberating women from our own biology that a lot of the stress and anxieties and problems that women have around sex is the potential to be pregnant and also the potential for STDs which I think is something that is quite overlooked the fact that a woman is more likely to get HIV from a man than a man is to get HIV from a woman and that is just a function of biology and mucous membranes and how the virus transfers but from the outset there there is a biological vulnerability to women but it seems to think that this needs to be managed by changing our biology and that this risk comes from the fact that we need to behave in this way and ignores the fact that in a free and liberated society, women would not have to 
take medication daily or buy things or act as a consumer or monitor our bodies when if we just had the power to say no either to sex outright or to particular sexual acts and if men did not have the desire to inflict on us sexual acts that have the potential to harm us through pregnancy and other consequences there would actually be no need for contraception i think there's also a matter of that yeah that women's desires are also constructed um around for instance piv i think that there are, we have such a pervasive culture of like constructing heterosexuality as normative and the like ultimate sacrament of the death cult of heterosexuality is piv so (laughs) um what i read too much mary daly i can hear Um, 30 doors slamming as people stop listening (laughs) hey um yeah i think that um like women are socialized to believe that PIV is something that they desire and we do live in a society that also tells us that PIV is non-optional, right? That heterosexuality Mm. and particularly PIV are just facts of life, that they are unavoidable and that they are something that women have to engage with, basically. Mm. And we're directly have that eroticized for us our entire lives. I mean, I think that Andrea Dworkin has written great things about this, particularly in intercourse, even things about how the female body constructed is as a whole, meaning something to be filled, something to be penetrated, that that is the purpose of our bio- that that is the purpose of our biology and function, but also how we are meant to use our biology for ourselves, even though that is a social construction and there's no reason that we wouldn't have other thoughts and other feelings about our bodies and what we want if we were not raised in a subordinate position liable to sexual intrusion and sexual violence and trauma for our entire lives, which are always going to affect you, and that we wouldn't see a difference in how women feel under different circumstances. I also think something was interesting that I read about the pill was a quote from a woman who was around during the um, 1960s, during the um, sexual revolution, um, Virginia Ironside. I'll link to the article in the show notes. She's talking about the introduction of the pill and she basically says that it has had a um, had the unfortunate effect of meaning that women like didn't have a ability to say no to sex. So um, she says in the article, true, we'd been brought up to say no to sex, but the only reason for that was because we might get pregnant. And if we got pregnant, then of course we might've been thrown out of our parents' home or be forced to give the baby up for adoption. Um, and then later she says, but now armed with the pill and with every man knowing you're armed with the pill, pregnancy was no longer a reason to say no to sex. And men exploited this mercilessly. Now for them, no always meant yes. Mm-hmm. Which you can absolutely relate to wider culture, whether it be hookup culture or porn culture or just hell, like sexualized advertising culture, because sexuality is so much more a domain of life and something that is meant to be enjoyable to women. We can't say no anymore because it's meant to be something that we want almost. I think also another interesting thing that happened around the sexual revolution and that you can very much see represented in culture around sex today is this idea of sexuality as sexuality as a 
sphere for marketing. So something to be marketed to. So this is often something that I find like sex positivity is just super duper keen on. Like they are so keen on the idea of people buying sex toys, people buying porn magazines, which I think betrays a general sort of, you know, tendency towards the ethical capitalism that often um, comes along with some some streams of sex positive thought. Not all of them, by all means, not all of them. There are um, very anti-capitalist sex positive feminists, but... For instance, yeah, generally the idea that we would have to, that sexuality is best explored and in fact is done best and most satisfyingly when you purchase all of these consumer goods conveniently. Like, especially mm-hmm. you can you can buy these gross ones or you can buy these nice ones with nice feminist packaging that are a nice brand and are all ethical and all of that. Um, and basically, yeah, turning sexuality into yet another thing that we as people need to purchase things for and be taught about through an industry Mm. and of course all of those euphemisms were about vibrators also dildos (laughs) yes but yeah um which i think was interesting because while both sex positivity and generally also us on the more rad femme side of the fence we all think that you know women should be able like women should be taught about female masturbation and that women should you know know their own bodies and everything it's just that quite often in sex positive schools of thought that also goes along with women should buy vibrators, right? Mm. And that a lot of the push to women discovering the clitoris went along with women purchasing vibrators, which I think is kind of interesting that this became a thing only when it became another market to sell to. Mm. It's interesting that a lot of sex positivity, like, pushes forth the fact that sex is natural, which I think is a perfectly fair enough um, assumption. But then it goes hand in hand with, yeah, this push that you need an accessory for sex. There's something beyond just exploring and enjoying your body that is not good enough or that is not possible enough, like for the number of women that we can have like a huge industry built around this. And I think that part of that ties into also the proliferation of feminist porn and erotica and all this sort of stuff. And there is an idea that that can be a source of education for women about how to have enjoyable, pleasurable sexual experiences, which is kind of strange when you think about it, because I think we, I would hope that we'd think that a healthy sexuality would be something that does indeed arise organically out of the individual, out of our wants and desires and connection to our body and our partner if we're having sex with another person. And that we wouldn't actually need all of these commercialized outside interests because it would be an expression of humanity and connection and joy and all of those good things about sex. Whereas when you commercialize it, there's definitely an an assumption that there is something missing from sex that only a multi-billion dollar company can fulfill or your niche feminist porn purveyor. Yeah, for instance, um, yeah, I just found interesting um, a phrase from um, the a phrase from a women's health center that was like feminist and I uh, pro sex is the implication I've gotten from this article. Um, 
which, and I quote, it cheerfully advertised that if you don't feel like sex with a partner, use a vibrator, which was strongly recommended for the sexually self-sufficient woman, which is interesting because of the idea that female masturbation inherently has to buy, involve the purchase of something. It still has to involve some sort of external item and that a woman by herself is not capable of getting sexual pleasure. Mm-hmm. And there's been a whole lot of information coming out about the clitoris in recent years that, you know, it's not just an external glands as a large organ inside your body that has a whole whole heap of nerve bundles and stuff, but like goes quite deep into your pelvic region and is actually quite a large, impressive structure. And that's true. I was certainly surprised to learn all about this. And it's definitely a really cool medical fact. And the fact that we didn't know this previously is absolutely a symptom of medical misogyny and purposeful ignorance about women's bodies. I absolutely agree with sex positivity there, that this has been something that no one knows about because no one really cares about women and particularly our reproductive tract, given the poor track record of reproductive health for women. But when we think about how this new knowledge about the clitoris is actually employed and operates under sex positivity, most of the time I see it talking about how the clitoris has like two arms almost that kind of come around like the outside of the vagina internally. And that this means that PIV can be enjoyable to women. And that's a very interesting kind of take to look at it because why do we need this information to be widespread? Like theoretically women who are already doing PIV and enjoy it are obviously already benefiting from this, whether or not they know about their internal anatomy or not. And women who don't like PIV obviously aren't really going to get any benefit from this anatomical knowledge because it's not directly related to an experience for them. And when you talk to most women about their day-to-day encounters with their clitoris, it's going to be about the external part of their body because that's a bit they can touch, see, feel as much as the internal organ is there and luckily has an effect. The glands is obviously a lot more prominent in our day-to-day life. So there's all this information and excitement about these new structures of the clitoris, but all that it seems to be doing is, again, it's similar to the pill. While it can be something that is great for women and empowers women, there doesn't seem to be much acknowledgement that there that it can also be used to enforce PIV and just general coercion of women by men, because it's not giving us any actual extra information about our own pleasure that we didn't already know. It's just an extra fact that doesn't seem to impose that directly on our day-to-day life that men and our popular culture can use to reframe women's bodies in a way that makes sex acts that might otherwise be unappealing more appealing or more interesting and give new avenues for explaining why this is something that women should be doing. Yeah, it's just... A big old PR campaign for PIV at the end of the day. And also it serves to frame, again, women's bodies as holes and as primarily existing for penetration, like to be penetrated, right? Mm. Like it once again takes even the clitoris 
seemingly almost a symbol of like non-penetrative sexuality and manages to reframe it back around penetration. Mm, exactly. I, I mean, like I, I take on board what you said and I think like, it is definitely true to a certain extent, but I, I would argue that there's a certain amount of sort of joyful discovery in the discourse around this as well. I mean, I think people got genuinely very excited. There were artists making big golden anatomically correct clitoris <laughs> statues and sort of, you know, I, th- I think people, I, yeah, like, I, I, I agree with what you've said to a certain extent, but I also, mm. I think that there was some positive stuff that came out of it as well because, because there is so, you know, women are generally kept in the dark about our bodies so much uh, that this was kind of, people got very excited to hear about this and, um, you know, there's a certain amount of pride that we've discovered this, you know, yet another amazing thing about the female body and what it's got and what it can do. So I think, I mean, I, th- I think there's positive stuff that's, come out of this and positive discourse around it as well mm. no I think you're definitely right in that as well like I wouldn't disagree with any of it and I think that this interesting kind of like at least for me both of these concepts around the clitoris that we've talked about like I think that these come like both these kind of perspectives that we've had on the clitoris speak more largely to sex positivity whereby we're taking like genuine concern for women and joy about women's experiences and that search for knowledge and authenticity but it's happening under patriarchy and that we do need to be mindful that that is going to influence either how we conceive of it at the time but also how it plays out later because I don't think that in this particular example that the solution would be to stop talking about the internal clitoris or to stop making giant gold statues of it but I'd want to see like more giant gold statues of a vulva where you can actually tell what the external clitoris is like more of a focus on sex acts that are focused towards women's enjoyment and pleasure and like ideally this is what sex positivity would actually be right like this what I'm saying sounds really familiar in a strange way but it just does not seem to play out like this and I think that yeah so many of those problems are is that it ignores the fact that when you're talking about women having sex with men or thinking about their bodies in relationship to encounters with men that power differential is always going to be at play and always messing things up either inside our own heads or the material reality of what is inspiring in those encounters. So looking forward, what do we have to offer instead? Or what do we think should be on offer instead? How can we take sex positivity and make it better? Or what is something that we can build and see kind of take its place? Well, you know, being Fraser, I don't think we should be taking sex positivity anywhere. I think, as with most things, I just want to tear down most terrible ideologies. So... I reckon we should be in the business of creating a like you know good ideology with which to analyze sexuality and discuss sex and I think that we we have that a lot in radical feminism particularly radical lesbian feminism um analysis analyses of um of sex porn heterosexuality all that sort of stuff I think we have pretty solid framework for that it's just also a matter of like how do we refine that how do we apply that what bits of that do we take on you know, how do we use that to create a useful movement when so much of our ideas are often so revolutionary, right, that 
realistically, how are we going to apply them in the next five to 10 years? How are we going to talk about making, how, how are we going to talk about creating a good sexuality when the way in which we, the primary way in which we know how to do that would involve the abolition of patriarchy, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of a weird chicken and the egg question almost because so many of the issues that we've discussed about sex positivity is the fact that this is happening under a context of patriarchy, that even good work is going to be undone because patriarchy is flexible, it adapts, it doesn't really have an issue with change so long as it's able to stay on top of that and, and absorb it and use it for men. So how do we go about creating something under patriarchy that's not just going to keep feeding the beast and actually offer us a way out is realistically, I think, like the primary question. And it probably speaks to feminist struggle more broadly because it's having a concise answer is fairly impossible. Yeah, so the, the solution to this is kind of, once again, it's going to be a twofold thing and sort of there's the the personal aspect and the political aspect, and they need to be tackled in tandem, but probably from slightly different directions. So as far as the personal goes, I think um, harking back to what Laura was saying earlier about sort of sex as being a kind of joyful exploration of um, your body and partner's body and, you know, that that sort of, and coming from a place of connection and mutual understanding and mutual uh, caring for one another. Um, that's, that is something that sort of has to happen on a personal level and has to, it's, it's going to involve sort of, yeah, a lot of examination on the part of individual women about um, their own desires and what's going on in their lives because then the other side of that is the the more political and the broader scale stuff and that is a much larger project because it has to do with basically uh, dismantling the context in which sexual relationships happen, which is one of patriarchy and within a culture that fetishizes domination and submission and hierarchies and power differentials and violence and all of those things. So dismantling that larger context is obviously a much larger project, but that sort of feeds back in again to how we sort of form a, a healthy and constructive human sexuality going forward. Yeah. I think it's important for us to remember that as feminists, we are we do need to be in the business of like discovering constantly um the an understanding of what of what like a good sexuality would be right so mm. while we may not be able to we obviously can't understand what a good sexuality would be like post patriarchy because we do not exist post patriarchy right we can mm. sort of have come to some sort of like concept of what a non hierarchical sexuality would be and attempts to be like constantly you know discovering that and constructing that and creating that right and I think that's something that, yeah, we need to be aware of, that that is a question that is um, always constantly going to be evolving as our constant situation under patriarchy evolves because a non-hierarchical sexuality can't simply exist, right? It has to exist in constant struggle against a normative hierarchical sexuality. Mm. I think taking on both of those points, both yours, Fraser, and Rachel's, in terms of what we, how we try to move forward, both kind of publicly and privately, I feel like the kind of unifying factor is obvious in addressing male violence. So in the public sphere, that's kind of like obvious attempts at 
agitation and opposition and changing culture to prevent sexual violence and highly sec- like the, the the highly sexualized culture that we live in like the public exploitation and objectification of women that's kind of the obvious public sphere that we go and then in in the private sphere feminism does have quite a good history of talking about and seeking out women's healing be that from direct severe trauma and also healing just as a woman who has lived under patriarchy and I think that idea of healing can actually be quite beneficial to sexuality because that does contribute to that continual search for a positive, healthy expression of sexuality that we can have at least at the time, as well as offer a general avenue for just addressing these messages and conceptions that we've absorbed and have put into place in our personal life. Like there's always room to grow and learn from that. And I think that that kind of dual focus on, again, addressing that it is the effect of male-driven culture and male sexuality that has caused these problems and by seeking to kind of remove their effects from our sexuality and also our personal lives is where we're going to see those real strides being made. Hmm. But I guess one of the things that I kind of, you know, because these debates are quite polarising and, they're, you know, and the, the names that people end up getting lumped with, like sex positive or anti-sex, you know, there's this perception that um, sex is seen as inherently bad and I don't think that it is um and i don't but i'd also obviously i don't take the sex positive line that it's inherently good and it's inherently sourcing empowerment if you're having orgasms then whatever you're doing is a-okay but i'd but i would say that um sex is important and it's powerful and so that's why it's worth examining the consequences of that of, of what we're actually doing and what's and the context of what we're doing and that, that that's the main issue here it's not a judgment of it being inherently good or bad or one way or the other. Yeah, I think it's worth remembering that while you would assume that the natural counterpoint to the sex positive movement would be the sex negative movement, that those labels are quite reductive and often quite misleading because while sex positive people are, are, you know, genuinely positive about sex, I wouldn't say that we are necessarily, as radical feminists, anti all sex, anti-sex inherently, right? Like I think that mm. we we are against a lot of the manifestations and the forms sex takes under patriarchy and that we believe that, you know, sex and sexuality are a theatre in which patriarchy plays out and has heavy influence. But I wouldn't say that we're against sex or sexuality indeed as, you know, a lot of radical feminist work is often quite positive about particular forms of sexuality, often quite, you know... um like lesbian radical lesbian feminism is often centered around like um the the goodness and positive analysis that can be built around like lesbian sexuality right so mm-hmm. we're not anti sex by any means we are anti patriarchy and the way that we are anti the way patriarchy manifests manifests itself in sex yeah And that brings us to the end of another episode of Feminism Out Loud. Thank you for listening. If you want to see more content like this, then like us on Facebook and subscribe to us on iTunes. We also have a Tumblr and a Twitter. All the information about our social media can be found in the show notes. So once again, thank you for listening and tune in next month for more Feminism Out Loud.
Bye.